There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Hello, this is Christopher from Defeat Modernism, and welcome to the Catholic Twilight Zone. This episode is going to cover St. Christopher, who, as many of you might remember from Butler's Lives of the Saints or the Golden Legend, that he is described as a giant being 12 cubits in length or height, which is the equivalent of 18 feet in stature. Uh, This harkens back to the book of Genesis and also the book of Enoch, which mentions these texts discuss angelic human hybrids becoming a race of giants. And this is mentioned throughout the Old Testament. And then also uh, the book of Jude, of St. Jude, does uh, quote, from the Book of Enoch, which the Book of Enoch is not part of the canonical text, but it is mentioned or quoted uh, in the Bible itself. And so there's also in the Book of Enoch what is alluded to as animal-human hybrids. And, you know, there are some that say the myths of the ancient Greeks, you know, the, the human-animal hybrids, the centaurs, um, the Cyclops, things of that nature were not necessarily myths, but we're speaking of these hybrid races, which were the main reason why God destroyed all of humanity through a flood because of this sin against nature. And it's a curious thing to, to think about and to, and to ponder. Uh, I'm going to be covering a good amount of that in this video, and this is going to be actually going back to the text of uh, ancient history uh, before Christ, text from ancient explorers like Marco Polo, uh, as well as uh, the text of St. Augustine, who speaks on this subject of uh, dog-headed men and animal-human hybrids. Now, in our present day, we know that that's possible because we, we have seen it. We've seen it in the news. Uh, we've saw, many of you might remember that horrific image, and I'm going to put that on the screen in a moment. If you don't want to see it, you might want to turn away, but of them growing a human ear inside of a mouse. And we really have no idea exactly what is going on in the laboratories today of the human cloning and what they're actually able to do now with the, with the vast technology and information, knowledge that they have through all this experimentation. So I want to start with where we are at today regarding these animal-human hybrids. So let's watch a short clip of mainstream media news on this topic. 
is it. Human stem cells being injected into a pig's embryo. For the first time, scientists are seeing how our cells grow and interact inside an animal. Scientists in the United States recently tried creating the world's first human monkey chimera. I'm going to repeat that so that it registers. American scientists injected human cells into the embryo of a monkey. China's already doing it, announcing in April that an international team successfully grew human monkey embryos and sustained them for 20 days in a lab. The only question is, what will they do next? U.S. and Chinese scientists have implanted human cells into monkey embryos. Yesterday, the Senate passed the Endless Frontier Act, a bill that commits nearly $250 billion to promote emerging technologies so that America can keep pace with Chinese innovation. In simple terms, they created embryos that were part monkey and part human. Chimeric research is a Pandora's box, that's obviously from hell, that should not be opened. Then we create... Um, human-animal chimeras with perhaps uh, human neurons in their brains. So what she was just saying at the end there was about monkeys with human neural cells. So you can see on the screen from this article, it was actually Yale University that did it in 2007. And I'm just going to go over a few more. It's, this is not an exhaustive list. You, you can look it up yourself online. There's, there's a lot of information on this really horrifying subject. But it is real. It is happening. And like I said, we have no idea really what is taking place and how far they've gone. Because uh, I, I don't think the general public is would be ready for that. But I would say that this whole trans, you know, transhumanist agenda is getting people acclimated with this idea of you know transgenderism, transhumans. Uh, I, I definitely think that that is where this is is going unfortunately here's another instance of it on the screen where you have pigs with half human blood this was done in a mayo clinic in minnesota where they injected human stem cells into pig fetuses and created the first pig half human blood uh, flowing through the, the veins of these pigs here you have an example of the u.s army giving a 1.4 million dollar grant to a japanese scientists uh, to create pig and sheep with human organs and this is supposedly to be used for organ harvesting. And this particular case is from 2003, where you have scientists in Shanghai back in 2003 fusing human cells and rabbit eggs, creating embryos of a new creature that was half rabbit and half human. And if that's not enough for you, here you have a paper going back to September 2004 uh, from the University of Southern California entitled Across the Great Divide, chimeras and species boundaries. The term chimera comes from Greek quote-unquote mythology and the chimera was a female lion so it had the complete body of a lion coming up out of the back or the center the shoulder between the shoulder blades of the of the lion was a goat's head and then the tail was that of a snake. So that's where the term chimera comes from. Now here, this article on the screen uses that same picture of a chimera, and that dates back to, I believe, 400 BC, that, that, um, that statue. 
But this says, this is from the Business Insider, it says, British scientists have secretly created more than 150 human-animal hybrids. This article is from the prestigious MIT Technology Review here in the United States. The, and this is from their biotechnology section. It says, human-animal chimeras are gestating on U.S. research farms. And that's a January 6, 2016 article. This is from Fox News. Uh, this was published May 27, 2021. And this is where the Senate Democrats rejected a ban on certain types of human-animal hybrid experiments. So they want it to go through. They want to have these experiments to be able to keep pace with the communist Chinese. So it's, it's truly horrific uh, what is taking place. And as the great Solomon once said, there's nothing new under the sun, right? What was of old is now here again. And I would submit that they did have much more advanced technology than we did today uh, in the what's termed as the antediluvian world uh, prior to the flood. And that's why you, they had such massive structures being built um, in part by giants, in part by the technology that they had, the, the advanced ancient technology that they had. And then this is the last article from modern day that I want to cover, at least in this section of the video. This comes from the Washington Times. Uh, it was June 2021, June 2nd, 2021 edition. Uh, it says, man-monkey hybrid sparks fears of Frankenstein creatures. And there's two uh, quotes two sections of this article I want to point out. Uh, this, in this article, it says, quote, Now that a chimera is no longer an ancient mythological creature having parts of a lion, goat, and serpent, but an actual human-annual hybrid, Republican lawmakers want to establish baselines for American research rooted in a belief in the dignity of human life. End quote. And then a little bit further on down the page, the article continues and says, quote, The term chimera is used because it is scientifically accurate, and the committee believes that its connection with the monsters of ancient myths is too remote to warrant avoiding its use, said the report titled Emerging Field of Human Neural Organoids, Transplants, and Chimeras, Science, Ethics, and Governance. Research scientists and their institutional representatives can be cautioned to avoid terminology that may court attention, but does their work a disservice by stimulating concerns that go far beyond the current state of the science? NIH did not answer the Washington Times' questions about the study it sponsored, but an NIH spokesperson noted in an email the moratorium on federal funding involving chimeric research, end quote. And you can see on the screen now that book or that report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine uh, on the emerging field of human neural organoids, transplants, and chimeras. So they're here. Uh, they exist. And I will submit that they existed in the ancient past as well. And, and so what does this have to do with St. Christopher, you might ask? Uh, as you saw in the, in the opening video, there was different icons of St. Christopher uh, as a 
part man, part dog, with a you know, man with a dog head, as you can see on the screen now, different uh, ancient icons of St. Christopher. If we look again at the butler's lives of the saints, the lives of the saints had said that Christopher was of, was of the lineage of the Canaanites, and he was of a right great stature and had a terrible and fearful face and appearance. And he was 12 cubits of length, as I mentioned earlier, so 18 feet tall. But he had a terrible and fearful face and appearance. But it doesn't describe here what that horrible face was. So the readers, you know, you're left wondering, what does that mean? You know, is he just have an angry look on his face? Uh, it seems as if there's something more there. And obviously, the icons that we looked at of a dog-headed man, that would be very terrible and fearful to see. Now, if we go back a little bit further in history, and the Butler's Lives of the Saints was uh, 1756 through 1759, and it was based upon, you know, obviously, older tradition. If we look now at the Irish Passion of St. Christopher, and this was a compilation of two early 15th century manuscripts, uh, the Labar Break, and the other one was the Labar Flavus uh, Fergorsurum. Part of my pronunciation, I really no idea how to pronounce those. But uh, so this was published in 1913 by a uh, J. Fraser. That's initial J, last name F R A S E R, and it it sheds more light on this terrible and fearful face appearance of St. Christopher. So let's listen to that. Quote, Now this Christopher was one of the dog heads, a race that had had the heads of dogs and ate human flesh. He meditated much on God, but at that time he could speak only the language of the dog heads. End quote. And this goes on for several pages. I'll, I'll read from this entire uh, text later in the video, uh, as well as this next text, which is the 9th century Passion of St. Christopher. Uh, and that says the following, quote, There was a certain man who, since he was a foreigner from the land of man-eaters, had a terrible appearance, a dog's head, as it were. And then a little bit further down in paragraph 3, you can see it highlighted there. It goes on explaining more about St. Christopher. It says, quote, his head was terrifying, like that of a dog, end quote. So there we have three accounts of the life and martyrdom of St. Christopher, uh, referencing his appearance as being terrible, a fearful face in the butler's lives of the saints, and then these two separate accounts of the passion of St. Christopher going into much more detail as to why exactly he was terrifying, why he looked um, terrible and fearful. And that is because he had a face like that of a dog. So now let's go further back in history. Let's look at the first instance of the, the account of a dog-headed race of humans. And for those of you watching on YouTube or on Odyssey on the video, you can see a curious-looking statue 
of a half-human, half-dog creature. And believe it or not, that statue is in the Vatican Museum. So, kind of a curious thing to have in a museum, uh, especially the Vatican Museum. But now let's go to the, the Greek physician, and this is 400 BC. His name was Theseus, and he's describing what is now today modern-day India and this race of people dwelling there at that time. And he'll use the term uh, cynocephaly, which is more or less the scientific term for this hybrid race of, of humans. And St. Augustine uses this term as well. But let's, let's hear what this Greek physician had to say. So he says, quote, They speak no language, but bark like dogs, and in this manner make themselves understood by each other. Their teeth are larger than those of dogs, their nails like those of these animals, but longer and rounder. They inhabit the mountains as far as the river Indus. Their complexion is swarthy. They are extremely just, like the rest of the Indians with whom they associate. They understand the Indian language, but are unable to converse, only barking or making signs with their hands and fingers by way of reply. They live on raw meat. They number about 120,000. The Sinocephali living on the mountains do not practice any trade, but live by hunting. When they have killed an animal, they roast it in the sun. They also rear numbers of sheep, goats, and asses, drinking the milk of the sheep and whey made from it. They eat the fruit of the Siptakora, whence amber is procured, since it is sweet. They also dry it and keep it in baskets, as the Greeks keep their dried grapes. They make rafts which they load with this fruit together with well-cleaned purple flowers and 260 talents of amber with the same quantity of the purple dye and thousand additional talents of amber which they send annually to the king of India. They exchange the rest for bread, flour, and cotton stuffs with the Indians for whom they also buy swords for hunting wild beasts, bows, and arrows being very skillful in drawing the bow and hurling the spear. They cannot be defeated in war, since they inhabit lofty and inaccessible mountains. Every five years, the king sends them a present of 300,000 bows, as many spears, 120,000 shields, and 50,000 swords. They do not live in houses, but in caves. They set out for the chase with bows and spears, and as they are very swift of foot, they pursue and soon overtake their quarry. The women have a bath once a month. The men do not have a bath at all, but only wash their hands. They anoint themselves three times a month with oil made from milk and wipe themselves with skins. The clothes of men and women alike are not skins with a hair on, but skins tanned and very fine. The richest wear linen cloths, but they are few in number. They have no beds, but sleep on leaves or grass. He who possesses the greatest number of sheep is considered the richest, and so in regard to their other possessions. All, both men and women, have tails above their hips like dogs, but longer and more hairy. They are just and live longer than any other men, 170, sometimes 200 years. End quote. Now to 5th century Greece and the writer Herodotus, who was the first great writer to document European history. Uh, he was described by Cicero 
as, quote, the father of history. He is known for having written the work entitled Histories, and it was a detailed account of the Greco-Persian Wars. But also uh, in this particular writing or this work, he mentions the, the dog-headed people, the Sinocephali. He says the following, quote, For the eastern region of Libya, which the nomads inhabit, is a low-lying and sandy as far as the Trinton River. But the land west of this, where the farmers live, is exceedingly mountainous and wooded and full of wild beasts. In that country are the huge snakes and the lions and the elephants and bears and asps, the horned asses, the kunocephali or cynocephali, dog-headed, end quote. Now to the text of the Roman Empire. And this comes from a gentleman named Elian, or Elian, uh, Claudius Elianus. He was Roman born in 170 AD. He was a pupil of the rhetorician Pisanius of Caesarea. He taught and practiced rhetoric. Uh, he was an expert in Attic Greek and became a scholar and studied history under the patronage of the Roman Empress Julia Domna. He spent his entire life in Italy, and he died in the year 230 A.D. He wrote uh, several books, 17 books, on the char characteristics of animals, and he had the following to say regarding the dog-headed people, and this is found in book number four. Quote, in the same part of India as the crimson dye beetles are born the cynocephaly, cynocephaly that is, as they are called, a name which they owe to their physical appearance and nature. For the rest, they are of human shape and go about clothed in the skin of beasts. And they are upright and injure no man. And though they have no speech, they howl. Yet they understand the Indian language. Wild animals are their food, and they catch them with the utmost ease, for they are exceedingly swift of foot. And when they have caught them, they kill and cook them, not over a fire, but by exposing them to the sun's heat, after they have shredded them to pieces. They also keep goats and sheep, and while their food is the flesh of wild beasts, their drink is the milk of the animals they keep. I have mentioned them along with brute beasts, as is logical, for their speech is inarticulate, unintelligible, and not that of man, end quote. In book 10, he says the following, quote, After traversing the Egyptian oasis, one is confronted for seven whole days with utter desert. Beyond this live the human kinoprospopi, or sinoprospopi, dog faces, along the road that leads to Ethiopia. It seems that these creatures live by hunting gazelles and antelopes. Further, they are black in appearance, and they have the head and teeth of a dog. And since they resemble this animal, it is very natural that I should mention them here, in a book on animals. They are, however, not endowed with speech, but utter a shrill, a shrill squeal. Beneath their chin hangs down a beard. You may compare it with the beards of dracones, serpents. And strong and very sharp nails cover their hands. Their whole body is covered with hair another respect in which they resemble dogs. They are very swift of foot and know the regions that are inaccessible 
That is why they appear so hard to capture, end quote. And then a little bit further down in Book 10, he says the following, quote, It occurs to me now to mention the following additional facts relating to the kinocephaly, that is the sinocephaly. If a kinocephalos finds some editable object with a shell on it, I mean almonds, acorns, nuts, it strips the shell off and cleans it out, after first breaking it most intelligently, and it knows that the contents are good to eat, but that the outside is to be thrown away, and it will drink wine, and if boiled or cooked meat is served to it, it will eat its fill, and it likes well-seasoned food, but food boiled without any care, it dislikes. If it wears clothes, it is careful of them, and does everything else that I have described. If you put it while still tiny to a woman's breast, it will suck the milk like a baby, end quote. And some claim that that is speaking of a baboon, but I, don't, I have yet to see any baboon that boils anything or drinks wine or wears clothes on its own. And before I forget, some of you might be familiar with uh, the ancient Egyptians, and in the center there is their image of Anubis, the Egyptian god of the dead, who's the head of a jackal, which is a type of, of canine or dog, and the body of a man. And that was that that statue in the Vatican Library I showed a few moments ago, that was of uh, Anubis. And here you can see uh, that Egyptian god and the two icons of St. Christopher with the dog head next to it, just as a comparison. And also the Sphinx, which was, has the, the head of a man and the body of a lion. So all of this animal-human uh, animal hybrid imagery. You know, is it legend? Is it myth? Is it, you know, is it, um, you know, speaking of, of gods? And that, that is the question here in the Catholic Twilight Zone, right? But we know, like I mentioned earlier, all those articles of mainstream media, of what they're doing today scientifically. And for all of these, let's say, a couple of millennia, many, many centuries, when men's technology was not that advanced, because we had lost so much of it, you know, after the cataclysm, uh, you know, after the, the the flood, and then after other cataclysms that happened afterwards uh, to humanity. Um, so it seemed like it was impossible, but now we know that it is possible. So who is to say that what they're representing are not necessarily myths, but actual beings, and they view them as if they were gods because they did have such great size, great strength and apparent powers that were beyond human understanding. Some of the earliest known references to dog-headed humans goes back 4,000 years, and these were found in Libya. Uh, images were carved into cliffs and boulders on a plateau, and among the carvings, uh, there were giraffes and elephants, but there were two uh, dog-headed men dragging the body of a of rhinoceros in one of them, and then the other images included a dog-headed human uh, carrying a club with a dog-headed baby at its feet. And then in another one, uh, he carries on his shoulders what is now the, uh, an extinct ox-like animal uh, called the Yurok. So those are some curious findings. And another uh, account, and probably not that well known, uh, actually comes from Alexander the Great, of all people. 
when he had invaded India in the 4th century BC. He claimed in letters to Aristotle, who was his teacher, that he had encountered dog-headed men. And Alexander even claimed to have captured several of them in battle, which he said were fierce and vicious, barking and snarling like beasts. And that's a similar account to what we've heard in all these uh, previous documents and letters and histories. In the year 1300 AD, a map of the world was created uh, in England. And on this map, it mentions this account of Alexander the Great. Uh, the map, as you can see on the screen, is represented as a flat earth with a round disk. And that might be a good topic for a future uh, Catholic Twilight Zone episode. But in keeping with this theme, this map is called the Hereford map. And on the map, it shows that in the northern rim of Asia, between the Caspian Sea and Cape Borum, that Alexander the Great had imprisoned a terrifying race of people that threatened world security. Uh, the inscription on the map reads the following, quote, Here are all kinds of horrors, more than can be imagined, intolerable cold, a constant blasting wind from the mountains, which the inhabitants called Bezo. Here are exceedingly savage people who eat human flesh and drink blood, the accursed sons of Cain. The Lord used Alexander the Great to close them off, for within sight of the king an earthquake occurred, and mountains tumbled upon mountains all around them. Where there were no mountains, Alexander hemmed them in with an indestructible wall. End quote. Now let's hear from Marco Polo, who, as many of you probably know, was a famous Venetian explorer who traveled throughout Asia along the Silk Road, and this was between the years 1271 and 1295 AD. During his travels, he went to the island of Angamanian, which you can see on the, on the screen now is located uh, in the Indian Ocean. So again, near India, which we've heard from Alexander the Great and those other Roman, uh, as well as Greek writers. His uh, account goes as follows, and this is in, his, in the book, uh, The Travels of Marco Polo. He says, quote, Angamanian is a very large island. The people are without a king and are idolaters and no better than wild beasts. And I assure you, all the men of this island of Angamanian have heads like dogs and teeth and eyes likewise. In fact, in the face, they're all just like big mastiff dogs. They have a quantity of spices, but they are a most cruel generation and eat everybody that they can catch, if not their own race, end quote. In the Chinese uh, record, the history of the Liang dynasty, there was a Buddhist missionary, Hui Sheng, and he describes an island of dog-headed men to the east of Fusang. Uh, this was a nation that he visited and it's sometimes identified as either Japan or the Americas, but perhaps it's this same island that Marco Polo had visited. There's also in the history of the northern dynasties of Li uh, Yanxiao, this was a Tang dynasty historian, he mentions of a quote-unquote dog kingdom. 
then you have a travel memoir which circulated between 1357 and 1371 attributed to a Sir John Mandeville and there's some debate as to whether and who this person was if this is actually the person who wrote this um, but be that as it may what you see on the screen now was a a copy from 1684 that I was able to find uh, but it was hard to to try to read some of the old English text in it, so I was able to find a more um, easily understood, uh, a more uh, up-to-date translation of it, let's say. And I'll put that on the screen now. So here he gives the following account. He says, quote, After that isle, men go by the sea ocean by many isles, unto an isle that is clept Necromera, that is a great isle and good and fair. And it is in compass about more than a thousand mile. And all the men and women of that isle have hounds' heads, and they be clept Sinocephales. And they be full reasonable and of good understanding, save that they worship an ox for their god. And also every one of them beareth an ox of gold or of silver in his forehead, in token that they love well their god. And they go all naked, save a little clout that they cover with their knees and their members. They be great folk and well fighting. And they have a great targe that covered all the body and a spear in their hand to fight with. And if they take any man in battle and on, they eat him. The king of that isle is full rich and full mighty and right devout after his law. And he hath about his neck three hundred pearls, orient, good and great and knotted, as paternosters here of amber. And in manner, as we say, our paternoster and our Ave Maria, counting the paternosters, write so this king saith every day devoutly three hundred prayers to his God, or that he eat. And he beareth also about his neck a ruby orient, noble and fine, that is a foot of length and five fingers large. And when they choose their king, they take him that ruby to bear in his hand. And so they lead him, riding all about the city. And from thence fromward, they be all abessient to him. And that ruby he shall bear always about his neck, for if he had not that ruby upon him, men would not hold him for king. The great Chan and Cathay hath greatly coveted that ruby, but he might never have it for war, nay, for no manner of goods. This king is so rightful and of equity in his dooms that men may go sickerly throughout all his country and bear with them with them list, that no man shall be hard hardy to rob them, and if he were, the king would justify it anon. Now here on pages 226 and 227, he speaks of a, a separate incident, and this is in chapter 11. It's entitled, How Being Repelled by Monstrous Men Shapen Like Dogs, they overcame the people of Berethabeth. He says, quote, But returning through the deserts, they came into a certain country, wherein, as it was reported unto us in the emperor's court by certain clergymen of Russia and others, who were long time among them, and that by strong and steadfast affirmation, they found certain monsters resembling women, who, being asked by many interpreters where the men of the land were, they answered, that whosoever women were born there were endued with the shape of mankind, but the males were like unto dogs. 
And delaying the time in that country, they met with the said dogs on the other side of the river. And in the midst of sharp winter, they cast themselves into the water. Afterward, they wallowed in the dust upon the mainland. And so the dust being mingled with water was frozen to their backs. And having oftentimes so done, the ice being strongly frozen upon them, with great fury, they came to fight against the Tartars. And when the Tartars threw their darts or shot their arrows among them, they rebounded back again, as if they had lightened upon stones. And the rest of their weapons could be by no means could by no means hurt them. Howbeit the dogs made an assault upon the Tartars, and wounding some of them with their teeth, and flaying others, at length they drove them out of their countries. And thereupon they have a proverb of the same matter, as yet rife among them, which they speak in jesting, sort one to another. My father or my brother was slain of dogs. The women which they took, they brought into their own country, who remained there till their dying day. And in traveling homewards, the said army of the Mongols came unto the land of Berathabeth, the inhabitants whereof are pagans, and conquered the people in battle. These people have a strange or rather a miserable kind of custom. For when any man's father deceaseth, he assembleth all his kindred, and they eat him. These men have no beards at all, for we saw them carry a certain iron instrument in their hands, wherewith, if any hairs grow upon their chin, they presently pluck them out. They are also very deformed. From thence the Tartars' army returned to their own home. So now let's hear from Paul the Deacon, who was a Benedictine monk, scribe, and historian of the Lombards. And on the screen you can see an English version of his book entitled History of the Langobards. Uh, this was a 1907 copy that I was able to find. Uh, but obviously he wrote it back in the um, first century. Now, he, in this history of the Lombards, he's writing about... Um, he wrote six books, and it was written after the year 787. And it was probably written at Mount Ticassino, where St. Benedict's uh, monastery uh, is or was at that time. And he was writing about the history of the Lombards and how they, they originated. And in this history, he makes mention of the dog-headed men. So here you can see, this is on page 20 of that book, um, and he it's in the top portion here on the screen for those of you watching. Uh, let's start where it says the Langobards. So he says, the Langobards, moreover, when they beheld the great forces of their enemies, did not dare engage them on account of the smallness of their army. And while they were deciding what they ought to do, necessity at length hit upon a plan. They pretend that they have in their camps cynocephaly, that is, men with dogs' heads. They spread the rumor among the enemy that these men wage war obstinately, drink human blood, and quaff their own gore if they cannot reach the foe. And to give faith to this assertion, the Langobards spread their tents wide and kindled a great many fires in their camps. The enemy being made credulous when these things are heard and seen, Dare not now attempt the war, they threatened. So 
he's even talking about them and the, and the lang well the langobards are making mention of them and people obviously have a belief in them some knowledge of them have seen them and as we as we, I just went over all these accounts from all over the world and all different ages this was something that was obviously uh, believed now let's go to the works of a Franciscan friar who lives in the late medieval period. Uh, this would be Blessed Adoric of Pordenone. Uh, he was born in the year 1286. He died on January 14th, uh, 1331. Uh, again, he was a Franciscan friar. He was beatified in 1755 by Pope Benedict XIV, and his feast day is the day he died, uh, January 14th. So again, this is Blessed Odoric of Pordenone. Now, he did travel. Uh, he was an explorer, a missionary explorer. He traveled through India, uh, the greater Sunda Islands, and China. Uh, he spent three years in Beijing. And in his travels, he does come across these dog-headed men. Now, I was unable to obtain a copy of this specific book that you see on the screen of his journeys. But I was able to find a compilation of his work online via another source. So as you can see on the screen... I pulled this from what is called Cathaway and the Way Thither, being a collection of medieval notices of China, a Doric of Pordenone, and this was a, uh, a 19, published in 1913 in London. And there in the abstract, it says volume one, uh, a revised edition of the first series, which was back in 1866. And it says, the appendix contains a Latin and an Italian text of Friar Adoric's travels in the early 14th century. So now let's go to, to that particular text. And here you can see, uh, mentions, it's the chapter of the island of Nicoveren, where the men have dogs' faces. And in the abstract, it says, Departing from that country and sailing towards the south over the ocean sea, I found many islands and countries, where among was one called Nicoveren. And this is a great isle, having a compass of a good 2,000 miles. And both the men and the women there have faces like dogs. And these people worship the ox as their god. Wherefore, they always wear upon the forehead an ox made of gold or silver, in token that he is their god. All the folk of that country, whether men or women, go naked, wearing nothing in the world but a handkerchief to cover their shame. They be stalwart men, and stout in battle, going forth to war naked, as they are with only a shield that covers them from head to foot. And if they hap to take any one in war who cannot produce money to ransom himself, withal they do straightway eat him. But if they can get money from him, they let him go. End quote. And if you, if this sounds familiar to you, that his account 
is striking simmer, similar, but not exactly the same, as Sir John uh, Mandeville that I read earlier, also mentioning them worshipping an ox, and uh, I believe it was the same island that he went to. The, the, the term is a little bit different. The spelling of it and how they pronounced it in, in here is a little bit different, but, uh, but they experienced the same thing on this island. And, I mean, are they both making this up? I mean, this this particular explorer, again, is a Franciscan friar, beatified by the church. Uh, it's all very, very interesting. Then you have Cardinal Pierre d'Allet, who was a French inquisitor. Uh, he claimed in the year 1410 that there existed a race of dog-headed men in India as well as a one-eyed variation of the creatures uh, referred to as the uh, Charismaspi. So that's uh, a curious account from a Catholic cardinal. Next, you have another Catholic explorer missionary, uh, Giovanni de Pian del Carpin, which in English is basically John of Plano Carpini. Uh, He lived in the year, he was born in the year 1185, died in August of of 1252. He was a medieval Italian diplomat, an archbishop, and you have Pope Innocent IV choosing him to head a mission to Genghis Khan. And that's what this uh, painting is on the screen that you see. He's coming before uh, Genghis Khan during that period of history, you know, when he was running rampant. Um, So let's look at what this uh, archbishop had to say. So this account is coming from uh, the book that you see on the screen. It says the texts and versions of John de Plano Carpini, as printed for the first time in 1598. Now, he gives accounts in several different pages. Uh, We're going to look here. In this book, this would be page 117. And there you see at the bottom, uh, beginning with, uh, I guess, section or paragraph 25, it says, How being repelled by monstrous men, shapen like dogs, they overcame the people of uh, Berithabeth. And here we go. He says, quote, But returning through the deserts, they came into a certain country, wherein, as it was reported unto us in the emperor's court by certain clergymen of Russia and others who were long time among them, and by and that by strong and steadfast affirmation, they found certain monsters resembling women, who being asked by many interpreters where the men of that land were, they answered that whatsoever women were born there were endued with the shape of of mankind, but the males were like unto dogs. And delaying the time in that country, they met with the said dogs and the other side, on the other side of the river. And in the midst of the sharp winter, they cast themselves into the water. Afterward, they wallowed in the dust upon the mainland. And so the dust being mingled with water was frozen to their backs. And having oftentimes so done, the ice being strongly frozen upon them with great fury, they came to fight against the Tartars. And when the Tartars threw their darts or shot their arrows among them, they rebounded back again. 
as if they had lighted upon stones, and the rest of their weapons could by no means hurt them. Howbeit the dogs made an assault upon the Tartars, and wounding some of them with their teeth, and slaying others at length, they drew them out of their countries. And thereupon they have a proverb of the same matter, as yet rife among them, which they speak in jesting sort one to another. My father or my brother was slain of dogs. The women which they took, they brought into their own country, who remained there to their dying day. And in traveling homewards, they, they said, Army of the Mongols came unto the land of Burabeth. The inhabitants were of our pagans, and conquered the people in battle. These people have a strange or rather miserable kind of custom. For when a man's father deceaseth, he assembles all his kindred, and they eat him. These men have no beards at all, for we saw them carry a certain iron instrument in their hands, wherewith if any hairs grow upon their chin, they presently pluck them out. They are also very deformed. From thence the Tartars' army returned to their own home. End quote. So this is basically exactly word for word from the text read earlier, again from um, uh, Sir, Sir John Mandeville's, and that was a later manuscript, so it, apparently he copied it from this. So now continuing on at the bottom part of this page there, you can see this section is entitled How They Had Repulse uh, at the Caspian Mountains and Were Driven Back by Men. Um, and you'll see that the English is looks like it's all typos, but remember this is from the 1500s, so this is how they, they wrote back then. So just part of me as I try to stumble my way through uh, deciphering this this old English text. Uh, but in this section, he's talking about uh, Genghis Khan again and, and what was taking place in these Caspian mountains. So if we go to the next page, page 122, all the way down there at the bottom, uh, where it says the North Ocean and the... Uh, on the left-hand side there. He says, uh, From thence they proceeded into a country lying upon the ocean sea, where they found certain monsters, who in all things resembled the shape of men, saving that their feet were like the feet of an ox. And they had indeed men's heads, but dogs' faces. They spake, as it were, two words like men, but at the third they barked like dogs. From hence they retired into Comania, and there some of them remained unto this day. And in the last uh, section in this work where he mentions men with dogs, uh, with dog heads, dog faces, is on page 133. You can see in the margin there on the right-hand side on the top where it says North Ocean, uh, right there is where he mentions it. So it says, quote, Next, unto the Smagote are those people which are said to have dog faces, inhabiting upon the desert shores of the ocean, end quote. Now let's open the Noel Codex. This is a 12th century manuscript that compiles uh, different texts. Uh, probably the most famous is the epic poem Beowulf, but also within it, it has a letter of Alexander the Great to Aristotle, that I mentioned before. This is just one of the many letters. It also contains the life of St. Christopher or the passion of St. Christopher. And another 
text that's called The Wonders of the East, and that was written, uh, they believe, around the year 1000 AD. Now, what I would like to do is start first with The Wonders of the East. And the paragraph in that text says the following. Also, there are born there half-dogs who are called conophene. They have horses' manes and boars' tusks and dogs' heads, and their breath is like a fiery flame. These lands are near the cities which are filled with all the worldly wealth that is in the south of Egypt. And now to a letter from Alexander the Great to Aristotle. And he said the following. After that, we saw amongst the wooded groves and trees a great multitude of the Sinocephali, who came because they wished to wound us, and we shot them with arrows, and they soon fled away and went back into the woods. Then we went into the Indian desert, and we saw nothing marvelous or extraordinary there. And then finally, I'm going to read from the Passion of St. Christopher that's found in this codex. Uh, This is dated back to the 9th century, and it says the following. The Passion of the Most Blessed Martyr, St. Christopher, and his companions, who suffered in the city of Antioch under Decius Caesar on the 10th of July. At that time there was much madness and a great multitude of idol worshippers. When therefore this madness was growing stronger in its opposition to the Christian faith, there was sent forth an edict from the emperors of that time that all who worshipped God should taste the unclean food of idolatry and that those who objected should be delivered up and subjected to different penalties. When they received this edict from the sacrilegious emperor, the governors devastated the church of God in order that all of us Christians might learn that our Lord not only helps Christians, but also rewards those from nations who are recently converted to the Lord and judges them acceptable in their knowledge of him. I tell the following tale. There was a certain man who, since he was a foreigner from the land of man-eaters, had a terrible appearance, a dog's head as it were. He was captured in war by the counts at that time and was led to the king. He posted him in the numerous marmaritarum which stood at the king's hand. But when the most wicked edict was published by the governor, This most blessed man was not able to speak our language. However, he was greatly disturbed at heart. He went out of the palace gates, threw himself upon his face, and prayed to the Lord to give him, through Christ's virtue, the ability to speak our language. Moreover, God, who loves the human race, did not delay, but immediately appeared at his side in the guise of a shining figure, and said, Rise. He took his hand and straightened him up. Opening his mouth, he breathed into him and gave him the spirit of understanding. And he began to say whatever he wanted. And the Lord said to him, Take comfort and act courageously, for many will believe in me through you. Fight it out well. So, for I am with you, lest you fear how you are to talk to the king. So when he had received this grace from God, He went in resolute at heart and saw the many who were being tortured and began to speak. You servants of a wicked and fickle cult, you are surrendering your souls to Satan 
and you are willing to destroy, along with yourselves, those who fear God. And he added, I am a Christian, and I will not sacrifice to your cursed demons. And as he spoke, he held his cloak before his face. But one of the insolent servants, hearing him blaspheme against the gods, began to hit him in the face. When he had given him three slaps, the other threw down his garments and said to him who had hit him, I am possessed by Christ. I have been overcome by the Savior, and I am not able to do anything to you. However, if you exacerbate my heart, you will not remain in my presence, nor will your corrupt king. Then seeing his face, which was unchanged and terrible, he retreated and fled to the king, saying, There is a certain man of terrible appearance, one who towers over most men, who appeared in sight of all the people when the edict was being published by the governor. In fact, who could explain the appearance of this apparition, except perhaps that the God of the Christians heard their prayers and sent him to help them? Unless you hurry and kill him, he will turn all from the sacrifice of the gods. The king said to him, You have a demon, and he appeared to you this way. What did you see? Speak. He replied, I tell my lord what I saw. His head was terrifying, like that of a dog. His hair was very long and gleaming like gold. His eyes were like the morning star, and his teeth were like the tusks of a boar. Words are not sufficient to tell of his greatness. Moreover, he said the most disgraceful things against you and the gods. So when I heard such talk, I began to beat him. But he said to me, I am possessed by Christ, but if I were not, I would kill you and your king. And I therefore report these things to you, my lord king, that you might know that what I say about this man is true. The king Decius said, Is he one of our men? Why does he say such things? The other replied, I do not know, my lord. Then Decius gave orders to his soldiers, saying, Go and get him. If he does not agree to come with you, rip him to pieces. Only bring his head to me, that I might see what he was like, if it was him or another. While they were discussing these things, Reprobus entered the house of the Lord, set his stick before the altar opposite the window, and falling on his face, prayed, saying, Lord my God, make that stick grow leaves again, if you have truly called me to contemplate your words. And immediately the stick grew leaves, and his faith comforted Reprobus. Then, reading his mind, he prayed, saying, I thank you, Lord my God that you have thought me a humble sinner worthy to share in your grace. While he was praying, a certain woman, as was her habit, entered to gather roses, and seeing him sitting and weeping, she reversed back out. She went away and told her neighbor, saying, There is a man of God here, but already tortures are being prepared against him, I know. While she was saying this, soldiers arrived seeking reprobus. Moreover, when they heard the woman's words, they asked, Where is the man? Show us. And she showed them where he was sitting. The soldiers entered and said to him, Who are you and why are you crying? He replied, I more than any other ought to weep bitterly, because when I was ignorant of God, I was never accused. 
but now that I know God, I suffer a tyrant. The soldier said to him, We have been sent to you to lead you bound to our king. Thus, Christ's athlete replied, You do not have the power to bind and take me, if I do not go of my own accord. For my Christ is present and could free me from my chains and rescue me from your father Satan. When they heard these things, they were too disturbed to speak any further to him. God glorified his servant indeed. The soldier said to him, If you do not want to come with us, rest, and we will go away and tell the king. We did not find him. And you leave and go wherever you want. But blessed Reprobus replied, Not that way, but I shall actually go and reveal to you the power of God. Only wait for me a little while. They said to him, We are paid according to the length of time we spend looking for you. If you do not want to come with us now, stay. And he said to them, Hear my words, and you will eat well. The soldiers focused their attention and replied, What is it that you want? Tell us. And he replied, Put aside those cares which have enthralled you, and I will pray to my Lord for you, and you will see the power of my God. He spoke a second time to them, The God in whom I believe lives, and I will give you the bread of his abundance. They replied, We believe you, because you are the servant of a great God. Then the Holy One prayed, saying, Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed the five loaves and fed the great multitude, my God, hear me, your servant, take pity on me, that all these standing here might be made your servants by this prayer and glorify the true God. The Lord heard the prayer of his servant, and sending an angel blessed the loaves, and they were multiplied, so that all were satisfied and filled their sacks. They glorified God and said, The God of the Christians is truly great, and he has listened to those who hope in him. We believe in him through you who work these wonders, because he is able to save us. Blessed Reprobus began to recite the psalm, saying, Bless the Lord now, all you servants of the Lord. Moreover, the soldiers joined in response. When the psalm had been completed, they knelt down and gave worship. When they rose, they summoned the priest of the holy place, Peter by name. He came and baptized the soldiers, just as he also baptized Blessed Reprobus, and named him Christopher, that is, Bearer of Christ. When they were baptized, they rejoiced in the Lord, and Christopher began to encourage them, saying, My most beloved brothers, he whom you have confessed, or to whose service you have been called, is God, and has called you to his kingdom. What do you want us to do? As one they said to him, God has enlightened us through you, so now you are one of us, and let what you want be done. He said to them, Let us go to the king, therefore, that we might receive a better crown. They all went with enthusiasm, since God was with them. Blessed Christopher addressed them a second time. Brothers, See that you do without hesitation all that is commanded of you when you have brought me to the king. For my part, I will pray for you. And just as you will see me suffer, you will do likewise. As he was saying this, they were hurrying to the city. And blessed Christopher said to them, Brothers, tie me up, in case anyone sees me unbound should perhaps make accusations against you, and you should be found to be at fault on my account. Thus they produced a chain which had been prepared. He put his hands behind his back, and they bound him, like a ram chosen from a great herd, 
readied for sacrifice to God. When he saw Christopher's face, the king fell off a seat. The most brave athlete of Christ said to him, O most unfortunate and corrupt king, if you are so afraid of me, a servant of God, how are you going to account to God? For God has it in his power to punish you, and he will demand from your hands the lives which you have destroyed. The king, Decius, said, What is your religion or your nationality, or what are you called? The most blessed one replied, If you want to know my religion, I am a Christian. My face reveals my nationality. My name, that which I was called by my parents, is reprobus. But after I was enlightened, I was called Christopher. Decius the king said, That name which you have given yourself after the one called Christ is useless, because it will be of no advantage to you. Now sacrifice to the gods, and by the gods that you might receive honors and rewards from me. But the most blessed one replied to the king, I neither desire your wealth nor admire your life, but know that I put my faith in my king, the Savior Jesus Christ. Do what you want then, for I will not offer sacrifice to the demons who are deaf, just as you yourself are also deaf. Decius said, You do not know where you are standing to say such things. You are storing up for yourself bitter torments. Christopher replied, Do you not know, O king, that while you torture me, you anger God and do honor to the demons? Then, enraged, the king ordered that he be hung up and torn with hooks. Many hours went by, and the holy martyr said nothing in reply, but only prayed and spoke to God. Again, the king ordered that he be viciously tortured. And when Christopher's ribs had been laid bare, the king's servant said to him, Take pity on yourself and us and sacrifice. What harm is it to say, I sacrifice and live? The most blessed one replied, If you saw your eternal punishment, you would not torture the servants of God. Then the governor said, There are two women, prostitutes in this city. Order these to be brought here, clothed with the costliest garments and various perfumes, and let us shut him in a small apartment with them, so that they can seduce him and convert him to our lusts. This talk pleased the king. And when this had been done, the women, wanting to achieve victory, just as they had been taught to arouse pleasure, talked softly, clapped their hands, and surrounded him. Blessed Christopher had been engaged in prayer. And when his prayer was finished, he rose from the place where he was praying and said to the women, What do you want? They answered thus, Your face terrifies us. And they did not dare to speak to him. Again he said to them, Why have you come here? But they said to themselves, We have sinned greatly because hard times befell us. If he keeps on threatening us, we will perish. What will we do now? The gods do not help us. Moreover, they said to St. Christopher, We believe in the God whom you have confessed, if only he forgets our sins. He said to them, What are your sins? Are you conscious of guilt for murder or other wicked deeds? Speak, that I may pray for you to the Lord. They replied, Not at all, Lord. Those are not our sins. But we are conscious that we were prostitutes and behaved accordingly. 
Until now we have been harlots and pagans. All the more so now do we rescue from death those who we can and redeem those sold as slaves. When they were saying this, the jailer entered and said to them, Get up, here is your call. The king summons you. But I beg you, holy man of God, not to forget me in your virtuous martyrdom. St. Christopher was then brought to the king. Consequently, the king ordered that the two women be brought to him. And he said to them, What is it? Have you persuaded this man to offer sacrifice to the gods? They replied, We agree no more with the great king, and there is no salvation in any god except him who is, just as the servant of God declares, the one and only God who made heaven and earth. But your gods cause ruination, and have never been able to achieve anything for anyone except to lead them to damnation. Decius the king said, Have you also been seduced by his magic and put your trust in him? One of them, Galanese by name, replied, We have not been seduced by his magic, but we willingly put our faith in God and are willing to die for him. Decius said, Summon the joiner to me. His aide replied, He is present, Lord. Decius said, Make for me a cubit length wooden square and cut it down the middle. Finish it and bring it to me, that I may put a painful end to her life. When the joiner had finished it, it was ready in the sight of the king. He ordered that her breast be put through it, that she be suspended by her hair, and that two millstones be hung from her feet. Her ribs were torn apart by the weight, and the flesh and skin of her neck split, so that she no longer seemed human. As he watched, Blessed Christopher prayed, saying, My God, remember your servant, because she is your slave. And he said to her, Your journey has been completed, your prayer accepted. Go to the Lord and remember me. As he said these things to her, Blessed Galanis came to her happy end. When she had died, the king ordered the servant of God, Aquilina, to be brought to him. And he said to her, Aquilina, Take pity on yourself and sacrifice to the gods, and by the gods. I will not spare the gold, but I will erect statues of you throughout all the cities, and I will honor you magnificently in order for you to recognize that it is a good thing to worship the gods. Aquilina replied, And to what gods are you ordering me to offer sacrifice? Decius answered, Sacrifice to Hercules, Jupiter, and Apollo. Aquilina said, I ought to trust your commands and offer sacrifice to the gods. Decius replied, You are acting like a sensible woman. He ordered that great linen mats be rolled out for her to walk upon, from the palace all the way to the temple, and that different perfumes be sprinkled before her, and that heralds proclaim in front of her and say, Aquilina, most beloved of the gods, sacrifices to the gods. Assemble, everyone. She entered the temple of the idols and said to the people standing there, Watch me and the sacrifice which I make. She climbed to the place where the statue stood and said to the statue of Jupiter, Are you a god? It made no reply to her. She said again, Speak to me. If you are truly a god, I have come as your servant. What do you want me to do? There was not a word or reply.
the servant of God said, Woe to me, a sinner! They are angry because I have offended them. But the priest said, Repent, and the great God Jupiter will take pity on you. Laughing, she replied, I will ask them not to take pity on my sin. And saying this, she took her belt and tied her handkerchief about the statue of Jupiter. And pulling it towards her, she threw the statue down. It was immediately smashed to pieces as fine as sand. Then she ran to Apollo and said, These gods are not awake, but sleep, so they do not hear their personal servants. In a similar manner, she tied her belt to the statue and threw it down. It was broken into three pieces. The result was that all who were watching cried out, The audacity of the woman who does not fear such statues. And she said to Hercules, Get going if you are a god, so that I do not destroy you. And she jumped up, grabbed the idol with her hands, and threw it down. She said to the people standing by, Call the doctors and let them cure your gods. Again she spoke, Alas for the human race which is in terror of the demons. Moreover, the blessed soldiers rejoiced greatly, but the devil, seeing himself mocked, was angry at his priests and said, Why have you done this to me? Why have you brought this mischief-maker to me? Get up, grab her, and take her to the king for him to destroy her. Then rising, the priests caught her and brought her to the king, saying, Why did you send this mad woman to us? She has smashed the great gods, and if we had not caught her, she would not have let one escape. Then the king said to her, Wicked woman, did you not agree with me to offer sacrifice to the gods? And she replied to him, O king, I offered the sacrifice that I ought. Moreover, permit me, if you wish, to sacrifice to the rest. Then the king was very much angered, and he ordered an awl to be brought, and for her heel to be pierced for it, to penetrate as far as her shoulder. He commanded that she be hung up in this manner, and that two millstones be attached to her feet and one to her neck. Seeing these things, the servant of God said to St. Christopher, I beg you, servant of God, pray for me while I struggle. Then the most blessed Christopher cried, O Lord my God, do not permit your maid to be tortured for a long time, but receive her spirit because she is your servant. As he prayed, God's maid servant died. And when this most blessed woman was deceased, the tyrant ordered that the bodies of the most blessed women and martyrs be kept for burning. They died the 24th of June. Then the king ordered that most blessed Christopher be brought forward, and he said to him, You most wickedly named and ugly man, you who are separated from the gods, you ought rather only to have died and not to have destroyed the ornaments of this city by your magic skills. Christopher replied, I was not the author of that work, but Christ, who has chosen his own gold and deigned me worthy to serve him in his palace. You, king, act and be comforted, that you may know how you meet the multitude who believe in God, for many ought to believe through me. And looking towards the soldiers, he said, Come, let us join together to earn the greatest crowns. Moreover, they, just as they were returning from a trip abroad, immediately threw down their arms and clothing in front of the king, and fell down at the feet of St. Christopher. They praised him, saying, Hail, servant of God on high, 
Your calling has been made a lamp for us. And they said to the king, We are Christians, and we sacrifice no more now to demons. Decius said, Alas for me, you have been turned into my oppressors. Blessed Christopher said, Do not be afraid. No successor to you has risen from hell, for we are Christians. Then the king ordered the servant of God to withdraw, and he began to talk to them in private. My sons, how I have wronged you that you desert me. Perhaps your horses have been lacking, or your clothing or ration is not sufficient. Come so, I apologize, and will make satisfaction for whatever wrong I have done. I ask you merely not to desert me, and I will give you many rewards. But as one, they replied to the king, Sit on our horses yourself, and eat our rations, and wear our uniforms in the great underworld, which is going to receive you, and enjoy there your whole inventory. But since meeting the most perfect servant of God, we receive true nourishment, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and despise the fire and torments of hell. Then, angered, the tyrant said, In case any other should perhaps join them, let them be quickly killed. He therefore ordered that their heads be cut off. His servants immediately beheaded them. After these things, Decius ordered St. Christopher to be brought forward and said to him, Wretched man, how has such madness profited you? Offer sacrifice and spare yourself the torments which await you. Most blessed Christopher replied to the king, Demon of many forms, son of Satan, it is enough to confound you. You will not prevail over me, even if you were to inflict several times as much upon me. Annoyed, the king ordered a bronze bench to be made to the height of a man and set it in the middle of the city. He ordered that the saint be fastened by nails to the top of the bench. And when this had been done, he ordered that plenty of wood be brought and that a great deal of olive nuts, 18 measures of olive oil, and a lot of pitch be poured over the wood, and thus they fueled the fire with these three ingredients. When the pitch and the olive oil had heated up, a fiery flood ran down through the edge of the fire, so that a crowd of the pagans perished. Moreover, by the will of God, a wind blew up and thrust the flames against the houses which were nearest and set them alight. Thirty houses fell. When the fire died out, there came to see the death of the most blessed martyr, a crowd of pagans and Christians, that they might acquire the blessing of his relics. And when they were all weeping, most blessed Christopher rose and stood on the bench, saying, Brothers, listen to me, all of you. I saw myself in this hour, standing in the middle of a city, and I saw a beautiful man. His face shone like the sun. His garments were radiant like the light. Moreover, I am incapable of describing his crown. There were also a few soldiers with him, and I saw another, dark and most terrible to behold. The hair of his head was like an intricate chain. They joined battle, and the ignoble one grew stronger against the noble one, and he gloried in his confidence. However, a short space of the hour went by. The one doing the glorying changed, and he overcame the other. He destroyed his army and banished his will. When the people heard these things, they cried out, saying, There is one God, he in whom St. Christopher believes. He has certainly not labored in vain. He knows the one to whom he fled, and we believe, 
hoping that we can save ourselves through you, Lord God. And 10,000 people believed at the same time and cried out, saying, Almighty God, we believe in you. Take pity on us, our Savior, and make us your worthy servants. Christ, and do not give us wealth for your booty, but give to your servants, Lord, the bath of immortality and the garment of incorruption, because yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen. And when they had prayed, behold, three priests came and baptized them and sang psalms, saying, Come to the Lord and be enlightened, and let not your faces blush. And when they were all praising God, Satan was struck with sorrow. Transformed into a man, he went off to the king and said to him, The gods have thought of you as less suitable, because you have not succeeded in harming one of the impious, but you have rather been defeated instead. You will perhaps be killed even if you do not flee. Ten thousand have unanimously put their faith in Christ, and they seek to kill you. I heard them speaking thus, and I rushed to tell you. When the king heard these things, he fled. When morning came, he ordered that the sacrifices be celebrated. The heralds cried out, saying, Gather everyone to pay sacrifice to the gods. And they ran up hurriedly. But most blessed Christopher, catching a crowd of Christians, went to the place where the fires had been and began to recite the Psalms, saying, Paradise is clear. Let us wait a little while until we are crowned. And the ten thousand replied together, so that because of the sweetness of their chant, a crowd of pagans gathered to them. Moreover, the wretched devil, approaching the king again, said to him, You have destroyed my worship, if you do not hurry up. Then the king, burning with great anger, gathered together a crowd from his army, and went to the place where were those who believed in God. He counted seven individuals and cut them entirely to pieces, for he did not behead them as was the custom, but fell upon them like the wolf attacks a flock when the shepherd is away. When this had been done, the tyrant ordered the furnace to be made and their bodies to be thrown into it, and seated nearby he ordered that they be completely cremated. The king's servants held two pronged irons in their hands, and breaking up the bones which were not on fire, they pushed them into the flame, where they burned. Again, the wicked king ordered sacks to be brought and their ashes to be collected into them, so that none of the Christians would touch them. And while he was pondering this, blessed Christopher prayed, saying, Almighty God, invisible Savior, visit your servants. Heed, Lord, the wickedness of our enemy, that the tyrant glories in destroying the bones of your servants. You said, Lord, that not one of those bones would be broken. Therefore, see now, Lord, that your servants have been crushed, even their bones, on account of your name, Lord, and take mercy, good shepherd. And when St. Christopher had prayed thus, God, the lover of the human race, heard his prayers, and there was an earthquake about the furnace, so that the king's seat fell. Then a crowd of men said to the king, You have truly tried God and sinned against his servant. Indeed, earthquakes continued until evening, and all who were there fled. Moreover, upon hearing these things, the archdeacon of Bishop Athanasius, together with his brothers, seized the relics of the saints and took them to Upper Italy. Again, the most wicked king ordered that Christopher be brought to him, and he said to him, Reprobus, why have you desired such doctrine? Why have you displayed such great madness? So now, compromise while you are away from the tortures and offer sacrifice to the great gods. But if you do not, 
By the great gods, I will make an evil end of you. However, Christ's martyr replied, Inventor of every wickedness, disciple of the devil, partner in eternal damnation. You have already been told that I neither compromise with nor sacrifice to those who are called gods by you. I hold firm to the God who made me. Decius said, Let a large rock, which thirty youths can barely move, be brought forward. And he ordered them to pierce the rock, and that Christopher's hair be pulled through there, and that he should be dragged along the whole street. When the crowd of men dragged him, the rock crushed the chest of the holy martyr, and many Christians gathered for his holy body. But those who were dragging it were beaten by the presbyte, and were forced to drag it bravely along. Then they said to the holy martyr, Take pity on yourself and on us, for we are worn out by this dragging. He said to them, You eat the king's bread, and do not prevail upon the servant of God to do wrong. Free me, and you will see the strength of my God. Seeing that he was almost dead, so crushed was he, they rolled the rock forward, set it upon him, and left him for dead. But the Lord stood by, and rolling the rock away from him, brought his crushed limbs to life again. And rising, he took the rock in his hands, and went away to the king, and said to him, Do you want me to strike you for this? The king ordered that he be held until the following day. When morning came, he ordered that he be brought to him. And when he was present, the king said to him, By the gods, I am afraid to say anything further to you, but I will with sorrow pass sentence on you. Christ's athlete said to him, You have spoken well of me, king, because my God has made you grieve for me. For the rest, do what you will. I hasten to the table of my Lord Jesus Christ, and my brothers who have gone before me support me. Pass your sentence quickly. The king asked him, Have you resolved to die, rather to live with us in glory? St. Christopher replied, I am an enemy of that glory, and of your demons which you adore. Annoyed again, the king said, Reprobus does not agree with our great gods, and scorns my commands. On account of this, I order that he be beheaded and his corpse burned. When the sentence had been received, they left the palace. St. Christopher began to sing psalms, praying thus, You have saved us from those afflicting us, and you have thrown into confusion those who hated us. And he turned to the soldiers and said, Wait a little for me that I may pray. And he spoke, O Lord my God, pay the king back in accordance with the way in which he has treated me. Upon saying these things, he went off to the place which had been prepared. And again he said to the soldiers, Wait for me a little while, that I may pray a second time. And stretching out his hands to the sky, he prayed, God, heed my humility, and deign to reveal to me the way of perfection, that I might rejoice in your glory, Lord. And behold, there was a great earthquake, with the result that the crowd present were killed. Behold, the heavens opened, and St. Christopher saw the Lord coming to him, and a great chorus of the just, and four angels in a sky of sevenfold splendor. A throne was placed, the Lord sat down, and many were astonished to see the glory which had appeared. Thus blessed Christopher, when he saw this glory, humbled himself at the feet of the Lord and said, How, in word or thought, will I praise you, Lord, that you have deigned to reveal your glory to me, your humble servant? The Lord said to him, You are more blessed than many, 
and will be called my most beloved servant. And blessed will those souls be who have merited possession of your relics. I shall heed no longer the sins of those who have approached me through your intercession. I swear by my glory to you that they shall attain paradise. St. Christopher replied, If I have found favor in your sight, Lord my God, grant me the confidence to speak to you. The Lord responded, Say what you will. The saint replied, saying, Lord, grant my corpse the second favor, that all who possess a part of my relics will merit such grace that no evil spirit nor bodily sickness will cower them and drive from them every evil desire. Lord my God, whether it be a city, larger area, or small locality where lies some of my relics, let not hail shower, crop disease, or vine sterility prevail there. But wherever my relics travel, if those regions have been harmed, grant them the grace of my presence, as it were. Lord my God, so that all the inhabitants of those regions may richly receive the produce of their cultivation, and filled with your grace, wholeheartedly glorify your holy name. Act thus, Lord my God. And the Lord replied, It will be as you request. I will not cause you sadness. And so you have come. Ascend to your brothers, for they all wonder at you, and my army of angels desires to see you. And when he had said this, he departed, and went to the place which had been prepared, and said to the executioner, Come, son, do what has been commanded. But I adjure you, by the God who watches over earth's orb, not to judge me. And upon saying these things, he crossed himself, and bending his knees, he stretched out his neck, and in this manner his head was cut off. He perfected his martyrdom on a Sunday at the seventh hour. Moreover, Athanasius, the bishop of Italy, a city which is on the border with Persia, heard of these events. He came to Antioch, paid 300 orari to the king's servants, and took away the corpse of the holy martyr to his own city. There was a river which used to flow down and flood this city. The bishop constructed a basilica at the source of the river and deposited there the corpse of the holy martyr. And the river was turned down the other side of the mountain, and the city has been kept safe until the present day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, who is the honor and glory, power and authority, forever and ever. Amen. Wow. That was the first time I've ever read that account. That was, that was amazing. Now there's also the Irish Passion of St. Christopher, and obviously the uh, Butler's Lives of the Saints, the Golden Legend um, account of the life of St. Christopher. But for the sake of, of time, I'm going to have uh, Sir Alfred, who's the Catholic storyteller, I'm going to have him read that in the next uh, Catholic storyteller episode for St. Christopher's Feast Day, which is July 25th. So just keep an eye out for that. And um, and from there, I want to just I'm going to wrap this up with uh, St. Augustine and St. Isidore speaking on uh, this subject. In chapter 8 of his work, The City of God, uh, the heading of that chapter is whether certain monstrous races of men are derived from the stock of Adam or Noah's sons. 
and he goes on about different races of men. But he goes, um, he speaks of the Sinosyphily specifically, and he says, What shall I say of the Sinosyphily, whose dog-like head and barking proclaim them beasts rather than men? But we are not bound to believe all we hear of these monstrosities. But whoever is anywhere born a man, that is, a rational mortal animal, no matter what unusual appearance he presents in color, movement, sound, nor how peculiar he is in some power, part, or quality of his nature, no Christian can doubt that he springs from that one protoplast. We can distinguish the common human nature from that which is peculiar and therefore wonderful. The same account which is given of monstrous births in individual cases can be given of monstrous races. For God, the creator of all, knows where and when each thing ought to be or to have been created because he sees the similarities and diversities which can contribute to the beauty of the whole. But he who cannot see the whole is offended by the deformity of the part because he is blind to that which balances it and to which it belongs. We know that men are born with more than four fingers and their hands or toes on their feet. This is a small matter. But far from us be the folly of supposing that the Creator mistook the number of a man's fingers, though we cannot account for the difference. And so, in cases where the divergence from the rule is greater, he who works no man justly finds fault with knows what he has done. At Hippodiratus, there is a man whose hands are crescent-shaped and have only two fingers each and his feet similarly formed. If there were a race like him, it would be added to the history of the curious and wonderful. Shall we therefore deny that this man is descended from that one man who was first created? As, far, as for the androgyny, or hermaphrodites, as they are called, though they are rare, Yet from time to time there appears persons of sex so doubtful that it remains uncertain from which sex they take their name, though it is customary to give them a masculine name, as the more worthy. For no one ever called them hermaphroditeses. Some years ago, quite within my own memory, a man was born in the east, double in his upper, but single in his lower half, having two heads, two chests, four hands, but one body and two feet like an ordinary man. And he lived so long that many had an opportunity of seeing him. But who could enumerate all the human births that have differed widely from their certain parents? As therefore no one will deny that these are all descended from that one man, so all the races which are reported to have diverged in bodily appearance from the usual course which nature generally or most universally preserves if they are embraced in that definition of man as rational and mortal animals, unquestionably trace their pedigree to that one first father of all. We are supposing these stories about various races who differ from one another and from us to be true, but possibly they are not. For if we were not aware that apes and monkeys and sphinxes are not men, but beasts, those historians would possibly describe them as races of men and flaunt with impunity their false and vainglorious discoveries. But supposing they are men of whom these marvels are recorded, what if God has seen fit to create some races in this way, that we might not suppose that the monstrous births which appear among ourselves are the failures of that wisdom whereby he fashions the human nature, 
as we speak of the failure of a less perfect workman. Accordingly, it ought not to seem absurd to us that as in individual races there are monstrous births, so in the whole race there are monstrous races. Wherefore, to conclude this question cautiously and guardedly, either these things which have been told of some races have, races have no existence at all, or if they do exist, they are not human races, or if they are human, they are descended from Adam. So that's an interesting take on all of it, and how he brings in the androgynous and the hermaphrodites and all these uh, curious, I guess what you would say are deformities. Um, but also, like I mentioned in the beginning, hybrids, chimeras, which we know are being created today, and there's no reason not to believe that they were created in the past. Uh, now, I mentioned about St. Isidore, and I was unable to find the actual text, but I'm going to play like a, a very quick uh, minute clip from a documentary that I found discuss this, and then we'll wrap this up. Oh, and before I forget, you can see these icons of St. Christopher with a dog head, and the there are many of them, um, in, in mainly in the Eastern Rites, uh, which is very interesting. You know, the iconography, they would actually make him as a dog-headed man, as a saint. So I think that that says a lot right there as well as to the belief in him being uh, deformed or created uh, in this way. A hundred years later, the other side of that argument was taken up by St. Isidore of Seville. He wrote that the Sinocephalae's method of communication, barking, reveals them to be more beasts than men. So those are interesting comments by St. Augustine and St. Isidore. Never ever knew about them at all. And, um, and on the screen here, this is a uh, illustration, a manuscript of Pentecost. And if you look at the bottom there in that, in that doorway, on the right side, you see a man with a dog head as the Holy Ghost comes down. It's just, it's just amazing. Um, really, really amazing. And it does make me wonder, you know, the, the talk of the Yeti, of the Sasquatch, um, you know, how elusive they are. You know, are they maybe the Sinocephaly hidden away? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, on the screen now, I'm playing that famous film, that um, uh, that Patterson-Gimlin film, you know, of of Bigfoot, of Sasquatch, and you know, these are these are curious curious questions, and I would be interested to know what you thought of this of this video, of this topic, uh, of this. A potential series I'm, I'm considering doing more of the Catholic Twilight Zone uh, so please let me know let me know some topics that you might want me to cover this would probably be something I do maybe once a month uh, just because there's so much uh, research that has to go into it I know I spoke in the beginning about the uh, the human hybrids and the human angelic hybrids uh, I did cover this on a, a past video on the Nephilim and the UFOs so uh, I don't want to cover that here because it's already pretty long, but I think I might do that uh, in a in a more depth in a future episode of the Catholic Twilight Zone. But as I mentioned just before, 
Uh, so Alfred's going to be covering the Passion of St. Christopher, the Irish Passion of St. Christopher, as well as the official Butler's Lives of the Saints account in, in the next uh, Catholic Storyteller episode. Uh, but he wants to to finish this video out with a, a few few brief comments, and um, I'll let him take over from here. From Augustine to Alexander the Great. From Greek and Roman historians, a missionary saint, a Catholic cardinal, the famous Marco Polo, and other explorers. Medieval texts, various icons and accounts of his martyrdom all saying the same thing. There were dog-headed men and one was the famous Saint Christopher. What say you dear listener? Are these all mere legends? Are all these men lying? Or have they all gone mad? These accounts are spread across a thousand years and all are strikingly similar. Perhaps they have all been living in the Catholic Twilight Zone.